So this is our very first expert rant and we are excited to have Dr. Katrina Steele. Um, she is one of the most prolific <laughs> scientists and I have to say that I aspire to be her so it's Aww. exciting. Um, and you guys know who I am. I'm Yonessa Humbert, Associate Professor at UF and I'm Alicia, a PhD student under Dr. Yonessa Humbert. And I'm Katrina Steele, and I'm a scientist, um, and I run the Swallowing Rehab Research Lab at the at the Toronto Rehab. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I run the Swallowing Rehabilitation Research Lab at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute in Toronto. So the reason I'm excited for this export rant is because. This is, I guess it's now our 13th down the hatch. And wow. you, what you guys don't know is the first down the hatch, Alicia and I tried to have wine with it. <laughs> and you guys have never actually heard the first down the hatch. <laughs> the, what is listed as the first down the hatch is actually the second because we got so much alcohol in our system, we made zero cents. <laughs> so maybe one day I'll like put that on like the cutting room floor version of down the hatch. So this is now the second time we're attempting to have wine. With we're, the picture of us trying to open the bottle of wine with a hammer <laughs> and a nail. Because exactly. we didn't have a wine opener. Yeah. So this time we're dignified. We have a Zaccardi Malbec here, 2014. It was a great year. Agreed? Yes. And uh, we are going to begin with the expert rant. So here's how an expert rant goes. We have an expert in swallowing who has bones to pick. Okay? <laughs> and while picking bones, this person often spews evidence to defend the bones they're picking. And that's really the long and short of it. We let Dr. Steele take us through her rant about whatever she has to say. We agree, we disagree, we don't even know what she's gonna say. That's the beauty of all of this. So Dr. Steele, how would you title <laughs> rant number one? What's your title for rant number one? Chance correspondence in screening. <laughs> what is the first item of agenda on your expert rant? Well, um, I listened to your last down the hatch, and uh -oh. I think I'd like <laughs> to pick up just and give a few thoughts about swallow screening. Got it. Um, I won't claim that the clinical swallowing evaluation is a screening because in my book, a screening doesn't require skilled training and I think one of the clinicians yes. made that Beth point, made that point. Mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be a quick and straightforward test mm -hmm. but I think the whole paradigm is problematic because what people are looking for in screening tests in, in medicine in general is something quick and easy um, that is supposed to predict the outcome of a much more complicated reference test and that the whole idea that that's possible is i think an interesting debate and um actually in in ontario where i live in canada there i think there are two interesting examples um people probably know that mammograms get a bad rap yeah they do um, 
but we live in a social medicine context and mm-hmm. so um, mammograms are paid for for mm-hmm. women in you know their 40s and and 50s and beyond and highly recommended and um, sort of the 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 hit rate um, is felt to be good enough mm-hmm. um, to warrant the system paying for mammograms and they might over identify and people might have to go back for more detailed checks and mm-hmm. that's um, uh, an accepted kind of mismatch. Mm-hmm. But can I ask you this, are boobies the same as swallowing and here's why I ask you that. There's no way to put the wrong anatomy between in that x-ray. You can't yes. accidentally be putting like another spherical no, item, like a butt true. cheek. This right? is true. This is true. But I, I'm not sure that an X-ray actually meets the sort of criterion of a simple test. So I think mammograms may, in fact, not be screening in the mm-hmm. sense of simple. Mm-hmm. The other example is interesting is PSA testing for prostate cancer mm-hmm. in men of about the same age mm-hmm. and widely recommended. Um, men are told it's probably time to have your mm-hmm. annual PSA test. In our health system, PSA tests are not funded by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wait, the, so let me get this straight. In Canada, women's health takes precedence over in men's Ontario, health? In Ontario, in this particular uh, scenario. I'm coming back home. I'm coming back um, home. So if you're, you know, if you're a 50-year-old husband decides to go and get a PSA test, you pay for it out of pocket, which is unusual in Canada. And the reason is that the accuracy is not so strong. And so the government feels it's not good enough to warrant paying for it. So I think that's interesting. But when it comes to swallow screening, um, first of all, I dispute that, um, that, that tests are screening for dysphagia. Um, and maybe we should start with a more controversial topic, which is definition of dysphagia. Um, but uh, so for me, I'll just say that I do have a definition and it's very pharyngeal focused. I yes. totally acknowledge that my focus is the pharynx. Mm-hmm. But for me, dysphagia is a dysfunction of swallowing that either involves a safety concern or an efficiency concern or both. Okay. And um, so we're talking penetration, aspiration, or residue and multiple swallows. And I love that Rinky in the last podcast immediately brought up that point and said, hey, are we talking about oral phase or pharyngeal phase when we talk about swallowing? This is the thing that drives me bonkers is that I agree that the oral component that precedes the pharyngeal trigger and the cascade of events that follows play an important role in sort of fine-tuning or or modifying that swallow Mm -hmm. so that it's the right kind of swallow, right? You swallow a saliva differently than a big old hunk of peanut butter. I get it. And that's because you know what it is when you put it in your oral cavity. But it doesn't make it the swallow. So if I'm getting ready to do a big leap over something, Seeing that it's a tire versus a safety pin that I'm jumping over, it's going to determine the extent to which I jump safely. It's not the actual jump, though. Right. Mm. It's the game. It's the championship game. Exactly. It's you can practice, 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 prep for that. But at the end of the day, when it's swallowed, right. that's what matters. And yeah. it's not like chewing gum. That's why I was saying, so is chewing gum swallowing? No. I, thought, I loved it when you asked that question. Because I, you're not, in fact, it's a more challenging task because you're not going to transfer the gum. That's right. You hope. Right. Yeah, you're not going to transfer But you are gum. continuously swallowing the saliva that accumulates. That's right. Yeah. And you don't need to prep that, do you? 
right? It's no. already in its form. You just got to get it back there. You have to manage it. That's right. So, so, but, so back so, to your point. Yeah, so back to my point is that even when screening tests and tools um, out there claim to be screening for dysphagia rather than just for aspiration, by far the majority focus on the clinical signs of aspiration. Mm -hmm. So we have tests where we give people water to swallow conventionally, um, although not exclusively, uh, and we watch for change in voice quality, coughing, mm -hmm. change in respiration as the, the three major things that we're looking for. Um, we rarely, if ever, uh, in these tools ask somebody do you feel something sticking behind in your throat? Mm -hmm. We don't count how many swallows they take per mm -hmm. sip, which are potentially signs of inefficiency. And so I would argue that all of our screening tools are, are benchmarked mm -hmm. around this concern for aspiration, which is something mm -hmm. we certainly want to look for. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, then what we do in this industry is we take a test uh, let's say it's water swallows um, and that's our screening test where we collect these these baseline observations and we compare those observations to a reference test which is 99.9 percent .9 of the time in our literature is a test done at a separate time mm -hmm. and with different tasks so we don't right. give the same um, thin liquid in the same volumes um, and compare apples to apples. Can I ask you, are you talking about the screen at the, uh, sorry, the eval at the bedside versus an instrumental eval right now? Yeah. I think yes. a good example okay. of that Just is want to make sure I'm on the same page. Take a swallowing screen at the bedside yeah. that commonly mm -hmm. is have the patient chug 90 cc's of water yeah. and see what happens. How often in a fluoro are clinicians having a patient do the same task. Exactly. 90 cc's of water. Exactly. See, that's, that's my, that, so, so this, this is, this is where I, so here's, this is going to come up really bad, but I've had wine. You said that if screening is typically done by somebody who's an expert, how do you define an expert? No, not, not, not an expert. Right. Not an expert. Sorry. Yes. Like a nurse. That's what a I meant to say. So that suggests that the speech pathologist, after a nurse screens, walks in because they, the, the, they failed the screen that the nurse did, and mm -hmm. somebody walks in and is going to then do the eval as an expert. So how do you define who an expert is? Well, it's somebody who's trained to look beyond um, those surface uh, clinical Checklists. signs and is interpreting. So I think in screen, there's no interpretation. It's a yes, no. Yeah. They coughed, they didn't cough. That's the, the um, expectation. There's no thought about mechanism or circumstances. I think interpretation is the key word. Yes. So how it was at Hopkins is when a nurse did a bedside swallow screen, it was very procedural. If they coughed, had wet vocal quality, had whatever, with a 90cc water chug, a button got clicked in their computer system, which automated a speech consult. So there's no interpretation. It wasn't well, their cognitive status, well, they had this type of surgery, they just got extubated, there was no interpretation, it was just boom, 
SLP consult. Right. No, I Very get that. I, I get what is how you define so, a screen. My only question is, let's move to the expert version. So let me let me give you actually a, I think a brilliant example of this. Um, so we tried to do a study. Well, we did a study a few years ago, where we tried to deal with the mismatch. Um, so we wanted the screening observations to come from the very same swallows that were the reference test. Mm. So we went into the fluoro suite and we used a video camera of the patient's face to record them performing screening tasks, but in fluoro. So they were swallowing barium instead of water. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we took those videos and we knew the truth because yep. we had blind rated the truth but we played those videos to nurses mm -hmm. and we asked them do you see any of the following signs and we had a, a set list mm -hmm. we asked them um, what did you think of the tongue lateralization what did you think of the voice um, did you see any coughing so it was very um, focused on things that people are supposed to be looking for mm -hmm. in screening mm -hmm. we also played those videos to speech pathologists mm -hmm and ask them exactly the same questions. Mm -hmm. And they had such difficulty with it. So the nurse- The speech pathologist. The speech pathologist. So the nurses, who all worked in Emerge, um, and burned through the set oh, of yeah. 40 videos. They watched each of them once, they gave an answer to every question, Easy. and they were done. That's their game, right? Just the speech <laughs> yeah. pathologists, and I've replicated this many times by playing the same videos in workshops. Mm -hmm. The speech pathologists labored. Couldn't. They noticed subtle facial <laughs> asymmetries. They noticed a little bit of barium hanging on the lips that might reflect poor lip seal. They heard maybe something in the voice. And they agonized. And they replayed every bolus a hundred times before they committed to their decision. And they were bad in their predictions. Oh, really? So, wow. um, and so were the nurses. They were the equally bad, but the nurses uh, were efficiently well, bad. Right? Yeah, exactly. The nurses were efficiently bad, and so when the when the question is, do you think you see any sign of a problem? Uh, obviously, we're going to err on the side of being conservative and cautious. Mm -hmm. But we were what, our specificity mm -hmm. in that study. Remind everybody what specificity. So specificity is, is the accuracy in ruling out. A problem mm -hmm. in people where it doesn't exist mm -hmm. right and it was atrocious they were over identifying yeah. concern and generally in screening the more valued criterion is sensitivity so correctly ruling in mm -hmm. the problem and there's a sense that it's okay to to have some false positives and over identify a few for the sake of catching everybody right. who really does have the problem but but there's no sort of accepted guideline on, on quite where those numbers should fall and how much over-identification is acceptable. And right. so if you, if you take this to its extreme, which I think is what's happening, mm -hmm. um, we see a patient for a screen and they could fail for a number of reasons. They could fail because they're not awake and that actually is often a criterion. Mm -hmm. So before we ever give them 
right. ebolas. They could fail based on some of the um, sort of oral mechanism type signs. Mm-hmm. So they could have mm-hmm. dysarthria, and we could say done. They've they've uh, because there's some sort of correlation, they've failed before we've ever given them a bolus. Mm-hmm. Or they could fail because they cough and, and have a voice change or a respiratory change on a bolus. Mm-hmm. Um, or just based on their diagnosis right. alone. And, and they only need one of mm-hmm. those reasons to fail and be done the screening test. Right. And, um, and yes, in a super conservative environment, that, uh, that may be appropriate. But what it means, if our sensitivity is 90%, we're catching nine out of 10 people with a problem, great. Mm -hmm. But if to do that, our specificity is 50%, that means five people out of every 10 who don't have a problem are gonna be sent for the reference test. And in this case, the reference sense you're talking about is? Video fluoroscopy, in my world, or endoscopy. And here's the issue. A lot of speech pathologists will say, I don't want to be in a situation where everyone goes to fluoro because they take it as a sign that they're not good enough. And you need fluoro in order to do the job you couldn't do at the bedside. And so I could see why that's a concern. On the flip side, you get speech pathologists that adhere to the four words not on my watch yeah so they'll take everybody to fluoro because they are terrified of misidentifying right so the cya cover so your ass. just figure hey just let's just figure it out and these are unique circumstances where you have incredible access to video fluoroscopy that can be overused mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in not so, a positive so sense. So two points about that. So I live in Canada where we have atrocious access to video fluoroscopy. So we really have to be, um, we have to use that resource wisely. Mm-hmm. And so people don't, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to go to video fluoroscopy. And we also don't have good access to endoscopy mm-hmm. uh, for various regulatory yeah. reasons. And I was the opposite. I had incredible access right. to fluoroscopy. I could take a patient on ECMO to fluoro. Right. So it's it's interesting to have that different it really is. vision based and on so your experience. So in our regulatory environment, the clinical swallowing examination, which is done by not the not the inexperienced or not mm-hmm. the 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 regulated health professional with more generic um, observation mm-hmm. skills, but the person who's trained to look for swallowing signs and symptoms and to interpret them. That clinical swallowing examination is the core of our practice, and it's used to decide who needs more. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more, hopefully, will explain the circumstances. We'll look for response to to therapeutic probes and so yeah. forth. So, so we rely perhaps too much on the clinical swallowing exam um, because of limited access to mm-hmm. fluoro. But the mm-hmm. other thing is to say that um, a big concern in our field is silent aspiration. Silent aspiration, by definition, uh, is aspiration that is not accompanied Seen but by not heard. any clinical signs. That's right. Mm-hmm. right. So if screening tests are looking for clinical signs, by definition, they cannot be 100% sensitive. Right. Yeah. Right? However, there's a math problem. I'm getting to my math problem. Okay. Okay. So let's just say that the screening is some sort of array of water tasks. Maybe it's single sips. Maybe it's 90 mils. Mm-hmm. 
it's water task then they do that and let's say um, that there is one episode of coughing or throat clearing or whatever your clinical sign is. Boom. Stamp. Okay. Boom. They, <laughs> you've got a positive sign. <laughs> then we go to video fluoroscopy mm-hmm. or endoscopy. We give them a much more comprehensive test. Mm-hmm. Let's say that involves 17 or 18 boluses. And it may involve quite different challenges. It may involve some sort of scaling of volume. Mm -hmm. And let's say that somewhere in those 17 or 18 tasks, there's one episode of penetration aspiration. Okay. Okay. The math behind most of the screening um, evaluations in our literature takes that one positive sign and compares it to the other one positive sign. Mm -hmm. And yet the probability of aspiration is entirely different in these two contexts. And so we are, in fact, if you were to model the chance probability of that correspondence it's extremely high Mm -hmm. that uh, that there would be one positive event and one positive event and Mm -hmm. i i believe that we can do better than that i think that um what we need to do is figure out the the set of tasks that we minimally need Mm -hmm. to um to adequately challenge the system to tell us risk so Mm -hmm. is and in the at, work, at the bedside at the bedside yeah. and even in fluoro yeah right so um if a person is going to have a penetration aspiration problem i i think that thin liquids are the most likely mm-hmm. to show that task mm-hmm. i personally i'm not a fan of of 90 cc's of thin liquid being swallowed continuously i think it puts extraordinary challenges unusual challenges mm-hmm. on the respiratory right. system how, how realistic is that really in real life i no, don't yeah. i don't think it is no, I, just, I just had 90 just, cc's of one without breathing no, what are you guys talking about that. you didn't have 90, <laughs> 90 cc's is quite a bit of yeah. liquid actually yeah. mm-hmm. I so mean, for, for me, I would like a task that is more representative of, of day-to-day swallowing behavior, sipping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how many mm-hmm. sips is a reasonable challenge? But one sip, according to research, is about 14 cc. Well, it's, they had a range. 10, ten yeah. 10, uh, and so, if you're a man with a bigger mouth, it's closer to 15. If you're a little smaller, it's probably closer to be yeah. to 10. But how many people start with that amount? They start with these 3 ml boluses that Absolutely. get lost. So that's yeah. a whole you other know, They get lost somewhere in the lateral sulci and couldn't yeah. even find so them. So I, I would personally like to advocate for testing that is representative of yeah. normal challenges. Yeah. So... Always I start with a normal cup sip. Right. Well, and so then and for me, it depends on what they're already doing. Like, obviously, a super like acute care situation where someone's at, they can make it to floral, but they're pretty at high risk. I don't necessarily start with a cup sip if they're not doing it at the bedside. Do you? Right, no. Well, um, do you? If someone is like... If somebody is that compromised, I'm probably not bringing them to floral in the first place. But what place. about when they're, when they're not that compromised, but they also can't really handle that whole thing going into their lungs? But what do you think? Well, no, I, I actually do. I you would, do? Yeah, I would yeah, give them a cup and I would say, sh- take one. Oh, sip. I actually You're not talking sip. about 90 cc. No, 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 no. Hey, I know you just got, I 
masturbated two hours yeah. ago, but drink this night. But no. I would like you to okay. take a yes. sip that is yes. normal and comfortable yeah. for okay. you, and I would like to evaluate what happens when Because I actually find that they do better than this art of this weird yes. medicine cup, yeah, and sure. it's a weird volume, and now you've made well, it you're cognitive. It's, yeah. just, it's just so unnatural that I, I just, I feel like it's... And then I give them a cup, and then they do great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just yeah. like... So then the question is... In a person who we should be concerned about, how many of those natural sips should we give mm-hmm. um, in order to catch the problem? What is the mm-hmm. frequency? So and I like to give um, three to five if I can. And yeah. the reason is that I have been doing healthy healthy people across the age span, anywhere from 18 to 90 something. And sometimes they come in off the street, they have no diagnosis, no, they're serving as a healthy age match control. And sometimes they aspirate or have deep penetration on the first floor, first swallow because they're a little nervous. And then they, then they inhibit their cough. Mm -hmm. And I go, Hey, did that feel plain? Yeah, that went down the wrong way, but I was, I didn't want to get kicked out of the study. So there you have a healthy person who has all this cognitive loading about what this first swallow means and they inhibit it. So if a healthy person can do that, how much more is a patient's first swallow that shows aspiration? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I like to do three I to agree. four. And I will say, I will say um, in when I was working clinically all the time, I was more strict towards the MBSIMP protocol and I would give one um, swallow per volume. And that was my protocol, and that's what I did. And it wasn't until I came here and started working uh, more in research, and you actually, Dr. Seal, presented, um, I don't remember where it was, but you showed some data that you really need four, is it mm-hmm. four boluses, and I started implementing that into my fluoros and was astounded to see patients that oh, 5 ml thin liquid looks beautiful. Let's move on. No, actually, if you do it three to four times, yeah. you're so not It can get worse or it can get better. So I don't, why don't, why I don't have that at the bedside. I don't have a firm number. Mm-hmm. So when we say right. four, yeah. uh, that comes from a, a large part. study where we mm-hmm. were actually giving six as a rule. And what we found was that the hit rate... Well, first of all, we found that people who did have a problem across six boluses somewhere didn't have it on every bolus mm-hmm. right so that's really important it's not yes. a it's not a consistent presentation yeah and and I will say that when I worked clinically I didn't work with stroke patients I worked more with a patient population that was um a lot of like ortho spine, mm-hmm. like really different, more like um, trauma patients. And when I started working with stroke, is when I really appreciated the variability in swallowing, mm-hmm. and that's when it really became apparent to me the need for multiple boluses because that sensory motor integration was not fixed. So meaning so, meaning uh, they're variable because you can give one bolus and they completely aspirate it. Silently, the next yeah. one they aspirated, then they cough like crazy. Yeah. The third one goes down beautifully, and the fourth one's like deep penetration. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so then two other things about this one is, um, we found that people were variable, um, second, we found that, um, four presentations of a thin liquid task, um, seemed to catch the people that that had a problem somewhere in the six, right? So, four seemed to be a, a reasonable sampling, mm-hmm. um. 
we also, we went in thinking that there might be a set of people who would have a problem on the first presentation and would then yeah. self-correct in some way. Yeah. Maybe it was the first time they'd swallowed in a while mm -hmm. and, um, and then their bodies would figure it out yeah. and next time they would fix it and we would be done. Correct. Dr. We, Bronwyn Jones would always call that first swallow syndrome. And I was yeah. lucky enough to have her as a radiologist and I was at Hopkins for my five years there and she swore by first swallow syndrome that they need one swallow to get the motor program right and then and after then that they fixed it she's she was always like you can't well, count that first swallow and the mbsm keep builds that in right mm -hmm. so in fact for the first task of thin liquids they give two and they ignore the first yep we didn't find what we called the red green green syndrome so yep. the first swallow <laughs> yeah. syndrome red, green, um green. we just didn't find it we found that um that that pattern was very rare. Yeah. And so that was interesting. At the end of the day, they might have four reds and each one has a different reason for the red. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? And so there's so, there's where the bolus went and there's why it went there. Cheers to that. Cheers. So, Dr. Steele, we are finished with rant number one. Well, you cut me off. Well, you're right. Yeah, you're right. That's right. But I think that's what it is. It but, leads into. But we, to we could have been topic. on rant number one for three more hours, we and there's just not that enough, enough wine for that, right? <laughs> so, rant number two is titled How? Uh, it's titled um, If. Or, um, hmm. Uh, representing the swallowing safety status of your patient. Okay, mm -hmm. and you wanted to dig right into the penetration aspiration scale. Yeah. Jump in. Well, let's take the scenario we were just talking about where you have four swallows, and you said mm -hmm. at the end they could have four different mechanisms. Yep. Um, and they could also have, let's say they were all swallows of concern. And they could have four different penetration aspiration scale scores. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to talk about is, um, let's actually make it even more interesting. Let's say that one of them wasn't a swallow of concern. So mm -hmm. one was either a, a penasp score of one, mm -hmm. so nothing went into the airway, mm -hmm. or a penasp score of two, which gets mm -hmm. called transient penetration or mm -hmm. high flash. penetration flash penetration mm -hmm. it goes in and it leaves mm -hmm. okay but then three of them were more serious than that maybe we had a score of three and a score of seven and mm -hmm. a score of eight mm -hmm. so um i don't have my calculator out but um so uh we look at this um and we have eight points on a scale mm -hmm. and uh very commonly in our field we take mm -hmm. a mean oh, right mm -hmm. so in that example of one three seven and eight mm -hmm. uh, the mean would probably be four Ooh, or, let's check katrina's or math. five <laughs> what is it going to be I would love it if it's four. What's, what's our what's our uh, one, one three seven and eight. eight? It might even be six, which would even be better for the point I'm about to make. I think it's four. It's a, divided by four. Divided yeah. by eleven point five. No, that's no, not no, possible. No. Add one. <laughs> 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 so 
Oh God! Wow. One, guys, I've had a half a glass of wine. That's one it. plus three plus seven plus eight. Oh, it was added by, by number before. Nineteen okay. divided by four. Yeah. So it's four point five. Four point seven five. Well, so the first thing to say is the penetration aspiration scale doesn't have decimal places. That's right. So it's either four. It's or five. either four or it's five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they mean different, quite different things. They actually, do. the four and the five. They do. In one case, it's their subjection. Um, In the other case, there's not. Listen. Um, but it's quite common when people do this in research to come up with a score that never happened in the samples. So right. you, can, you can have scores of one, three, seven, and eight that occurred, and then the group mean is four, which never ever happened. Right. Now, and this is because the scale isn't um, a continuous. But is it fair to say that scale? we could blame, just bear with me. You could blame the PENASP for not being possible to do that, but does the PENASP actually adequately represent swallowing, that you can't get an average swallow behavior? I don't, I don't think it's... Does that make sense? I don't... I, I, I mean, do we really want something that averages no, a whole flow no, session? No. And I will say this, I will interject, because I know we're a bunch of researchers sitting at the table, but all clinical experience is that... In my experience, I actually don't see clinicians averaging penetration aspiration scores. Do you guys they take see the worst that? one, right? It's the, usually the worst one. Yes. But why? But I, do you see, and this why? is just a, a, a question, is do you see clinicians Never. say patient had an average PENAF score 4.75? Here's, Here's the issue. There was a Facebook discussion. I think I was dragged into it by advice, <coughs> um, and he tagged me. <laughs> I just saw it. It may have been that one. It was may have been a different one. How do you guys judge severity of swallowing? Is it that one? It may have been that one, but I feel like it was a while ago regarding head and neck cancer and um, Dr. Um, Langmore's study and the fact that NMES was different than the group without NMES. Mm-hmm. And the difference was... NMES, for people that don't know. ESTIM. Okay. Was, thank you, was different from the group that did not have ESTIM. And there was this big discussion, to my knowledge, rec- recollection, that... Eastem was worse than no Eastem because one group had a 5.2 and one group had a 4.9 on the PANAS. Yeah, 5.1 <laughs> versus 4.9, which was statistically different but not clinically yes. relevant. Now, so, I'm not saying, I'm not here trashing the study. I'm not here trashing the intent. But I'm it's, just saying it's that while clinicians, while clinicians might not be tabulating this, they're using data that did tabulate it to make clinical decisions. So indirectly, I worry about that. So I agree with you. They're not getting means. No. But, they're, but it's but the I'm research. But they're delineating yes. a research problem and a clinical problem. Yes. That's all. I think yes. that we have and, to define And that's my point in saying that while they're, the clinical problem is that they're taking the research problem and bringing it into their decision exactly. making, right? Because exactly. right. yeah. it's fair. They read the abstract and they read the conclusion and it says there is a statistical difference. Yeah. Most clinicians are not going to the methods and parsing apart the statistical analysis the lack of continuity of a variable you know like all right that stuff. like oh well there was a continuous not a categorical yeah, con- yeah. versus so i love the descriptions of the different levels on the penetration aspiration mm-hmm. scale yes, i'm too. still not convinced that they all happen but i hey, love the description which one doesn't happen dr Steele? well as far as i can tell from <laughs> looking at literature um six and four are exceptionally rare and six where it goes below the cords and is then ejected right. either to the supraglottic space or out mm-hmm. 
is not frequent is not seen in people's data sets right. hmm. so and that's that's very troubling to me i'll come back to that in a minute because okay. i think physiologically that's an interesting discussion but but just to finish the, the conversation about mm-hmm. averaging i would like to really strongly encourage people to set aside average mm-hmm. as a, as um as a concept and look at frequency. Mm-hmm. It's much more interesting mm-hmm. to know that of four boluses, um, an eight happened four times, mm-hmm. and the average would be eight, yeah. right? Um, but what's what's much more powerful is that it, the probability of an eight was That's really right. really yeah. high. That's right. Uh, whereas if an eight happened once out of four, your probability right. goes from a hundred percent to twenty five percent, and mm-hmm. and so I think clinically it's very useful for us to start talking in terms of frequencies and probabilities. Your point is, you all may have heard of mean, median, and mode. Sure. And you're suggesting taking the mode, which is the most frequently occurring number, as opposed to the average or the middle number, which is your median. But actually, what we we recommended in our article was that to, to adequately represent the safety status of a patient on a given task, Mm -hmm. then liquid swallows, for example, and maybe even naturally sized sips of thin liquid swallows, Mm -hmm. you need two numbers. You need to know the most common Mm -hmm. score, and you need to know the worst score. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? But don't you also need to know the best? You might need to know the best To know what's what's possible? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we... Yeah, and I think that that's profiling your entire Because what if the worst is an eight, the mode or most frequent is a five, and the best is a four versus someone whose best is a one. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a range. Yeah. range. And I think, so three points I want to make. One is I agree with that comment. And the reason why is because it's, it's not that they had a PAS of one. It's why did they have a PAS, mm-hmm. PAS of one? And how do we tap into that? I think that's extremely important for treatment planning. Mm-hmm. Two is we talk a lot in the clinical examination at the bedside about risk. Yeah. But I think it's something that we need to talk a little bit more in the video fluoroscopic evaluation mm-hmm. about risk because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about that the the video fluoro is a one time you know in a five minute evaluation it doesn't represent an entire meal right mm-hmm. but by representing the frequency of penetration aspiration, we do inherently get an idea of what their risk is. Yes. So if somebody has, this is where I think frequency plays so importantly into this, is if you're giving thin liquid boluses and seven out of eight times they have an eight and one is a one, that's mm-hmm. a very different than the person that has an eight on one swallow and one's the rest of the way. Their risk profile of what they're gonna do in a meal mm-hmm. is very, very different. But doesn't MBSIMP suggest taking the worst? worst. So both of those it does. does. So it I, does. I've not taken the training, but I'm curious, would both of those be, if, if a clinician adheres to policy, so to speak, and says, represents the, the all the swallows as the eight in both the person who's had seven eights and one one versus one eight and right. seven ones. So and without, without, without interpretation, an, without they, interpretation, it, they both look kind they of They don't bad. suggest an interpretation in the oh, MBSIMP. Okay. It's an impairment profile okay. that is geared towards judging the worst. Okay. So where I, where I think this gets a little hairy mm-hmm. is that when the MBSIMP is taken in its soul profile 
as the interpretation, and I don't think that that profile is enough okay. for interpretation. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the mechanism between why do you think there is not a four and a six? So a four mm-hmm. on a PENAS score means the bolus went to the level of the focal folds and was ejected. Mm-hmm. The six means it went below the level of the focal folds and was ejected. The commonality between the two is the ejected part. Mm-hmm. Yes, except and you're, that and just they, to be I clear, would say that mm-hmm. they're different ejection mechanisms. Yes. So I like sure, sure, two, but that's sure. And so maybe right. maybe that's where this all lies. So you're saying it's very, it's not very frequent that you see a four or a six. So tell us why you think that's the case. Well, I think it speaks to different levels of sensory and mm-hmm. motor impairment. True. Um, and so I teach anatomy in our program, and um, I, for me, I find the literature actually um, not terribly uh, rich in this area. There aren't a lot of authoritative studies, but but what I have learned over the years is that the primary um, nerve that is used experimentally in animal studies to elicit swallows mm-hmm. is uh, to stimulate the internal branch of the mm-hmm. superior laryngeal nerve and that we which know which is part of the vagus nerve cranial yes. nerve 10 and we know that the receptors for that particular branch are richly deposited on the undersurface of the epiglottis so that laryngeal mm-hmm. surface and in and around the laryngeal vestibule. Mm-hmm. And so we know that if you excite those receptors, that the typical response is a swallow. Okay. So, um, and I think that when we see penetration and then um, ejection, uh, most commonly the mechanism of ejection is one of slightly late closure of the laryngeal vestibule so that the material is sort of biomechanically squeezed back and that is because laryngeal vestibule closure is typically from bottom to top it is from inferior to superior and that happens when a swallow occurs Mm -hmm. so when people penetrate um, I uh, I'm not looking for a cough. I'm mm-hmm. looking for um, a swallow mm-hmm. as the reflexive response, and it might be delayed and it might be ineffective. Yeah. But um, but it's important to me to know so whether just to there's be clear, a swallow. When you say there's a swallow, you mean a second swallow or that primary swallow that was penetrated? Just doesn't to, doesn't it has really to be. matter. Um, I think that often the penetration is pre-laryngeal vestibule closure on the initial swallow. So when material gets into the vestibule, I expect in a uh, system with sensory integrity of the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve mm-hmm. to see an immediate attempt to swallow and squeeze it and, and mm-hmm. in the consequence of that so just to, to be clear, material out. And it doesn't have to be a cough per yes. se. No. So just to be clear, with a, four, with a four, you're talking about aspiration during the swallow, right? Which means, which is why we can tie not, laryngeal... Not aspiration. Sorry, sorry. Uh, penetration, depenetration during the swallow. It has to be if we're talking about uh, LVC-related problems, right? Because yes. why would the larynx be closed before the swallow, right? right? And after the swallow, well, you've got to breathe, so the larynx is open again. So let's say we're talking about a swallow where the bolus gets to the level of the vocal folds because the swallow airway closure was late, and then the swallow happens, and because by virtue of the way laryngeal vestibule closure happens, which is bottom to top, it is squeezed out, right? Correct. So in that situation, we can't even say that the ejection was really 
protective necessarily because they were responding to a problem. No. It was just that the swallow happened eventually and right. squeezed it out. Absolutely. Okay. And I remember asking Dr. Rosenbach about mechanisms a long time ago. Okay. I said, you know, just does the person have to be aware or is it a volitional uh, reaction? And he said, no. Um, so to me, as long as the bolus is in that supra vocal fold territory mm -hmm. and even touching the vocal mm -hmm. folds, mm -hmm. we're in superior laryngeal nerve territory. And I, mm -hmm. um, I would personally, uh, based on what I understand, dispute the idea that we would expect throat clearing or coughing in that context. Right. I, Since it, you're gating. I mean, yes. yes. And so to me, it's a failure of the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve when this happens. It's a bit late, it's a, and it's a more motor mm -hmm. kind of problem. Right. The minute the bolus falls to the underside mm -hmm. um, through the vocal folds, mm -hmm. we're into a different nerve territory. Right. We're into recurrent laryngeal Still nerve. vagus, but Still, different yes. branch. Yes. Mm -hmm. And here we expect a different response, mm -hmm. which is um, a, an attempt to eject from that location through a cough or a throating, throat clearing mechanism. Mm -hmm. So yes, then I'm looking for the things we, we look for clinically. Yes. And if it doesn't happen, it suggests failure at a sensory level yes. as well as motor. Or both. This is where or the big both. guns have to come out. When it gets right? below the vocal cords, the and sensory mechanisms need to come out to right. play. So here, according to the PASS scale, we have three possibilities. Mm -hmm. We have um, a six where it goes below. There's a, uh, a response, a cough or a throat clear because uh, that's the only logical response that would eject from that level, mm -hmm. right? And the material is ejected, and the literature suggests, um, based on what's published, that sixes are exceptionally rare. I think I've seen one recording mm -hmm. of a nominal six in my career, and it's an example you played on, mm -hmm. on a video. It's like mm -hmm. a weird It's a, yeah. weird one, it's a very right? weird spot. So they're very rare. Um, then we have sevens. Mm -hmm where the person feels it, they cough and they throat clear and nothing happens. Mm -hmm, the stuff mm -hmm. stays exactly where it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if sixes never happen or are like, you know, once in a million years, mm -hmm. then that means we're talking sevens or eights. This to me is very disturbing. Mm -hmm. This means it doesn't matter if the person's coughing or throat clearing, the stuff is staying mm -hmm. where we don't want it to be. Yeah. And eights, we just don't have the coughing and the throat clearing. So it's even See, so eights there. To eights me, are impairing sorry, both eights sensory. To me, this is my big issue with the penetration aspiration score slash the idea of whether someone cleared. And that is you have a very strong judgment about the act of clearing. I know, first of all, let's get past all the cultural issues associated with coughing and hacking up and whatnot. And the fact that they know if they cough, they're gonna be having a diet change vast majority of people who've been, this is their second or third rodeo, who the last first time they coughed, they couldn't have thin liquids anymore. Do you think they're gonna try to cough you the second time? You suppress it. Oh, I know that some patients can because in my territory and research, I'm not changing their but diet. But is it normal to be able to suppress let me just, let me just Let me just say this, let me just say this. Whenever, and this is an example from, I forget who it is, uh, maybe Karen Hedlund or Michelle Trochet from a talk from Dysphagia Research Society. 
And they were talking about the ability to suppress a cough when you know, like for instance, during intermission during the opera, it's a <laughs> cough fest. It's a cough fest. <laughs> All these people are coughing like crazy. And that is because, keep in mind, we're dealing with people with suppressed sensory systems in the first place. So me feeling a drop drain is not the same person who's on their second stroke, right? Mm -hmm. So we're assuming that my response that can't be inhibited is the same as theirs. So let's say theirs is half as good as mine. Mm -hmm. They might have the ability to suppress more because of the worry that a cough suggests something. They don't even know that it's worse that they didn't cough and we can see that. But I have had patients come into our research lab who've said, I try not to cough because last time I coughed, I couldn't have beer anymore. But they know I'm not going to do anything to them because I'm just here for research. So my so that's my first that's my first so hurdle. We, we, let's let, let's put that aside and say these are people who don't have that issue. Okay, but I'm just throwing it out there. Sometimes I see people do a double swallow and a triple swallow and a quadruple swallow. So they notice something, but their response is inappropriate. And an eight on an eight, and I'll say, so did you feel that? Yep, I was swallowing a few times. I couldn't get it up. So that is your response to this. That's your response. And then you might hear the random little quiet throat clears or that kind of thing. And the floor was off, so I don't know where it is. And when I flash back on, it's gone either because it went into the lungs or because it was cleared. Yeah. I don't know. We so don't the know. problem with an aid is that floor is off. You don't know how to interpret all those movements. Unless you hear, <sighs> then you don't really know what that means. Or it's so delayed that you don't know if it's attributed to the fact that it's now way yeah. down in the carina yeah. or wherever, from two or three boluses. And it could have been a microscopic drop where it could have been It could been have been an accumulation of three swall, three aspirations yeah. that require that threshold before they go, okay, yeah, now I have to cough. So we what don't the, even know which bolus to attribute that cough yeah. to. But what this really does for me is it undermines the validity of our clinical observations. Uh -huh. Okay, uh -huh. so... We know that absence of proof is no proof of absence or the other way around. Yes. So, there's, so there's no cough. We interpret that um, either as evidence that the person's fine or if we're worried about some sort of clinical history, we start to think about silent aspiration. So it's a one, it's our, our interpretations are one or an eight almost. It's right. like you're good are, or you're horrible. <laughs> but if there's a cough, somehow we've developed this clinical comfort with coughing. We say, oh, this is great. You coughed. I, it tells me you felt it. Mm -hmm. And we're also saying then, you know, maybe it was ejected. But sixes don't happen. Or they're exceptionally rare. So we've all of a sudden started to feel comfortable with the fact that there's sensory integrity but the material is the proof. In the, in, yeah. yeah. No, and I totally so, understand what you're saying. You're so saying. I think yeah. it's, it's very disturbing. Right. I think that. Um, so six is, or six is the one we want in life. Six is the one that we assume a cough absolutely. equals, but I, it doesn't mean that it does. And that's your point here. We've just done a data set of more than 4,000 boluses mm -hmm. in people referred for video fluoroscopy, neuro. Mm -hmm. We have not got a single six in mm -hmm. 4,000 boluses that were double blind rated independently. But I, I just, I, I have to stop and reiterate your point because I think it's so critical is that we live and die by the cough. We do. For good and for bad. For, but we, we encourage, you're, you're right, and I hadn't really thought about it this way. And I myself in the past month have said that... How many patients? I've said it to a zillion patients. Oh my gosh. Well, your sensation is intact. You have, well, you sense it. You have a cough. That's great. And we encourage it. That is a good thing. 
But you're right. I mean, I and I don't. That is important, reason. and we're going to uh, wrap up. You're cutting me off. No, I am. So <laughs> Dr. Steele, your third and final rant. I, I would like to talk about aggressive, uh, being aggressive in pursuing better swallowing for our patients. Mm, meaning we should be more or we should be less? I think we should be more. Now, I'm, I'm uh, definitely speaking from my perspective in Canada, um, mm -hmm. and so it may not be quite as... as um, significant down here but we don't have rehab going on for swallowing mm -hmm. um, very very limited rehab mm -hmm. and it's often you know one session a week mm -hmm. and so I don't think it has a hope mm -hmm. of um, really changing swallowing and yet I believe there is the potential to improve swallowing and so I think that um, personally it's not good enough to um, prescribe a um, modified diet um, or maybe tube feeding and say that's all we can do. I think that um, there are people who deserve the chance mm -hmm. to really work on their swallowing function and I'd, I'd love to see um, hope here. Mm -hmm. um, and we definitely need research. We don't have a lot here of um, outcomes to hang our hats on. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I'm not sure we've approached this with enough aggression and intensity. Yeah. And I, I would really like to see um, this. I went to a conference a couple of years ago in Toronto, a, a big stroke conference. Mm -hmm. um, and we all know that swallowing impairment is supposed to be present in half of mm -hmm. stroke patients. Mm -hmm. So you would think that it should be well represented at a conference on stroke. And there were a handful of posters uh, all on swallow screening. Yeah. Um, and I was the only um, mm -hmm. uh, abstract in the entire conference talking about swallowing treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I was dwarfed by um, studies of, of intervention for uh, gait and mobility and mm -hmm. grasp and shoulder function and cognitive function and aphasia and so forth. And um, it almost seems like we've given up uh, clinically. And I, I, I really don't believe that mm -hmm. that is the best we can do. I would really love to see us uh, taking this on seriously and um, and doing intensive swallowing therapy. We don't know how intensive it needs to be. Right. So there are people probably listening right now in SNFs who do nothing but therapy. Yes. Who are probably saying, well, that's all I do. How do you define intense versus consistent? Well, I think we have to take it a step back, actually, okay. and talk about the different levels of care. Yeah. So sure. you have acute care where... The person just had a stroke. We'll take stroke, for example. Um, maybe they're in the hospital for a week, maybe three days, two weeks, a month. And then they go to inpatient rehab, if they're lucky, if they qualify for, if they have disability enough that they require PTOT speech. Yeah, do you have the silly thing that we have where you have to have two areas yep. of impairment? And it's PT and OT. 
So, well, and usually, if it's speech and swallowing, it doesn't count as two areas. That's one discipline. No. For us, it's very discipline focused. So, a good example of that is the patient that is extremely cognitively impaired but can walk mm-hmm. and can take a shower. They can be significantly cognitively impaired and they will go home. They don't qualify. It's very hard for speech to be one of the primary disciplines. Mm-hmm. So, it's yes, they have to be able to tolerate three hours of therapy a week. Yeah, a day. Uh, a, day a day, sorry. A day. Six days a week. Yep, and it's very PT dependent. So, it's very focused so, on mobility. I'll just jump in and say that I think we have a bias, a serious bias in our literature um, because of these kinds of requirements. Yep. Um, so, uh, the people who get to rehab are the people who are doing quite well. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. And uh, the, the, the timelines have sped up, right? So they're, they're, they're going there sometimes within five days of stroke mm-hmm. onset. Um, and they have the best chance of a good they're outcome. Best. It's like if you have a swallowing impairment, the best thing for you is if you have trouble walking. You yes. will get to rehab and you will get therapy every day, three hours a day, five seven days a week yes but that depends on what kind of payment situation you have it because does. we just we it just had wait but yes it, it does doesn't, it doesn't. we just had a patient if you recall who drove hours to come to our study who is cognitively intact mm-hmm. works out can do squats at the gym but has had a brain stem stroke and the primary pers- issue this person has Fantastic. this person has amazing as he said amazing insurance it will pay forever and he's motivated as anything and he can't swallow. and he cannot he never swallow. qualify for inpatient rehab well sure never. well he's not an inpatient he's outpatient but if we take that situation where when he was inpatient and he was like, I was motivated, and this particular private insurance he said had would definitely pay for it, for sure. his problem was that the, he said the clinicians were kind of tired of seeing him. He said I could tell that they're like, so what are we going to do with you, sir, kind of thing. Like we've given up, right? Because while he has the money and the motivation, they weren't necessarily seeing progress. So they started to feel a little bit like, well, what can we do for you? Yeah. You well, know? and... We don't know when the critical periods for swallowing are. We don't. But I think, Dr. Seale, your point is not that there are these, um, I was trying to say barriers, but like boundaries came Intensity is head. difficult to no, implement. But still, the point is, let's say that we don't have those barriers. Her point, I think, is, are we ever going to know what really intense therapy could do and why aren't we necessarily doing it? And what would it be if we had that patient who could be the you know the shining star of the perfect well, example? It would be it would be a variety of things. Mm-hmm. And this is another problem mm-hmm. in our research, right? So we live in this world where we value randomized control trials. Yeah. And to do a randomized control trial you need big numbers. And mm-hmm. so you you end up watering down all the things that are so interesting about our patients. You say, I need, you know, I need sixty people who've had a stroke who have dysphagia. A stroke in this location, not that location. Well, maybe, but that's usually not even that, Yeah. right? So you could have you could have your brainstem stroke patient who has no swallow, mm-hmm. as well as a cortical stroke where mm-hmm. all they Tiny, have yeah. is, uh, yeah. And they're all lumped in and they're all given the same treatment because that's what you need to do for a randomized control mm-hmm. trial. The, the paradigm interferes with our ability to to move forward and then even worse it also falls into your point about types of study designs that are considered to be stronger so maybe our single subject design where we just figure out what the heck these problems are is more important 
Because if you said you have a stroke person with a brainstem issue, a stroke person with a cortical issue, they're two completely different kinds of swallowing one, one, problems. One had a stroke one week ago, one had a stroke eight years ago. Yeah, but let's, say, totally we, let's say we keep it all acute, right? They say within the first two, let's say they say first two months, this person has a cortical stroke and they have a three-second delay in swallow onset and the bullets consistently goes into the airway. The other person cannot initiate a swallow because they have a brainstem stroke. Totally. They're all in the same I basket. They're all getting the same treatment, but we know clinically we would not necessarily give them the same treatment. You would never do that. But yeah. research calls for it mm -hmm. if you want the highest level of treatment but maybe we need to not be like maybe i need to not have like the highest most pure kind of heroin because like i haven't even had like you know <laughs> smoked a joint why the hell am i jumping to like pure heroin like that is not for me you know what i'm saying wow um yeah um, well but so i i think that this comes full circle back to i know a topic you're fond of which is 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 mechanistic um understanding of of the problem of the pathophysiology and selecting the treatment that is has the best chance of addressing that that's what we tell clinicians to do that's right. really hard on clinicians and then to do. research doesn't do it it doesn't you know i said i i was on your um dysphagia grand rounds and for our tongue pressure study and mm -hmm. you know we looked for people who had the combination mm -hmm. of tongue weakness and uh, long stage transition mm -hmm. duration um, and we had people who also had other things wrong with their swallow, but they met our criteria and they'd had a stroke within the time frame, and so they were enrolled in the study. But if I had taken that patient and, and analyzed their physiology in a mechanistic way, would I have chosen that particular intervention for them? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe there would have been a more appropriate strategy mm -hmm. for that patient. And, but they're in the mix. But don't you think that our issue is that we don't, in research, let's say you t we take your criteria, you have to have a tongue weakness below a certain threshold and a delay. But then there's a person who has those two things, but their UAS also doesn't open. Absolutely. So you know mm -hmm. the tongue is not the issue because that overflow from post-swallow residue is going to be aspirated. Right. So isn't it, so isn't it, so is it, have excluded them? So right? here's the issue. Is it useful to go ahead and study them and say five patients had these issues? It sucked. Don't do tongue strengthening on people with U.S. issues because that needs to be said. It's like the study that shows that if you drain someone's blood on the pavement, they don't live. I didn't know we needed to do that study, <laughs> but it, apparently we need to do those studies sometimes because some of the questions that come up on social media, it's like, wow, I didn't think that study needed to happen. But well, maybe it does. They, we need numbers. Oh, we always need numbers. Right. Or we need to the the opposite argument to having you know large sample sizes mm -hmm. is to really apply this mechanistic thinking and um, and the, it's a luxury in research mm -hmm. for me to be able to say I'm going to take you and I'm going to spend the next six weeks pursuing my you know hypothesis A mm -hmm. and if that doesn't work right. then I'm going to move to hypothesis B. But it, you know, it can just be, you know how in um, studies they'll say these people were excluded, but we let them finish the study and we found this. It doesn't have to be your primary hypothesis, no. but it could be something that's anecdotally mentioned in the discussion that's still clinically relevant and leads other people to hypothesis testing in a more formal way. Right. That's all. And I, I guess I'm, what I'm also saying is I'm not an advocate of generic 
treatment selection or yeah. bag of all tricks sure. selection. Absolutely. Um, Throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not an advocate of that for grant writing or for treatment. Right. Um, I think that uh, we can do better than that. Right. And we I'm should sure. be trying to do better than that. And I would really actually, I, I'd like to encourage clinicians who who do pursue each participant as a single subject research question to to share their results in posters. And um, I think we need to ah, build a... You bring an interesting point, which is I know so many clinicians who have submitted very interesting, clinically relevant cases that us scientists would be interested in, but they can't get accepted yeah. because it's not, oh, you don't have any p-values. And I feel like what's happening is they actually have the access to the patients. Mm-hmm. We have the research expertise. I think we're discouraging clinicians from submitting and getting together and having a conversation because the two groups don't talk. Sure. So mm-hmm. what I would say is perhaps what we need to do is say clinicians and researchers, we're doing the same thing actually. And what we're doing is you have an N of 1, we have an N of 51. You have a rationale for your hypothesis about what's wrong with this patient. Ours happens to be based on, you know, a lot of research literature. Yours is, happens to be based on your clinical expertise and maybe some research as well. Right. But at the end of the day, you go through the systematic process of weeding it, of testing and testing different things to figure out, okay, I'm wrong here, I'm right there. Ours just happens to be the scientific method. And so, so but the question have, is, can we pull those together? We can. I think we should. Mm-hmm. I think we can. I think that we need sort of a think tank kind of mechanism. Mm-hmm. We need to develop a shortlist mm-hmm. that is that links uh, what we know currently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the um, these mechanisms, most logical treatments. Yeah. Right. And maybe we need someone like you or mm-hmm. me to coordinate a big right. um, uh, IRB application mm-hmm. that sets up this paradigm, and then clinicians could maybe uh, sign on to the project. And agree to follow those yes. those and those this, rules and collect the data in a um, logical way, mm-hmm. and we build a, a library of cases that yep. follow this thinking. And maybe some of it will be wrong. Yeah, but, but we still learn from it, don't we? And and it'll be heterogeneous. Exactly. Yes. And I love that's the real world. I th- I think that that's really the key. And I one of my good friends who's a speech pathologist isn't um, involved in research. We were having a conversation actually last week and. And she said, we were talking about fluoros, and she sees a thousand patients a day. You know, she's just one of those busy head and neck cancer outpatient centers. And she said, yeah, I'm involved in research in in the sense that um, MD Anderson is doing a a multi-site trial. And she said they gave us the protocol. They gave us the methodology and how to run patients. And we send them our outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and they do all the intricate data analysis that as clinicians, they don't necessarily have time to do timing analysis or things like that. But that type of partnership, I think, is really critical where as clinicians, you maybe have all these questions but don't know how to answer them and don't know how to set it up in the way that's doesn't introduce bias it doesn't introduce and then they get discouraged because we go oh like you if you had done this and this and this and they need to know it in advance so we need leadership here and Mm -hmm. i I actually i I love the fact that you brought up andy anderson because i think that kate hutchison is leading here Mm -hmm. so what she's doing is saying uh if you're going to do this we need the following measures at these times and does this work for you and it's going to be a center. core set of measures. This is how we're going to to look at whether there's improvement or deterioration yeah. or whatever or outcome. Um, and so you sign on to that plan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, 
and and we work together to build the evidence Absolutely. base because we desperately need an evidence base. But it, if it all it ever is is in people who've had motor vehicle accidents yeah. due to head in, you know head injury, yeah. um, uh, that is not well defined, and we don't know about mechanisms, and we don't mm-hmm. know about profile of mm-hmm. impairment, mm-hmm. we're going to be stuck right for a long time. Well. The good news is we've ended on something that we're all passionate about, Mm -hmm. and I think that it's a step in the direction of connecting researchers and clinicians. I mean, we have this down the hatch that Rinky and I do about minimizing the research-clinician divide, and I think that if our field's going to go anywhere, it has that those barriers have to come down, without question. I agree. And um, hopefully, if you guys are listening, you'll be commenting and saying sign me up for whenever that study happens this is the population i see you probably get emails like i do all the time about clinicians who are like i want to be involved in research i don't know what to do but i have this patient population use me mm-hmm. and the question is how do we as researchers and clinician leaders systematize that so it's possible so maybe that's a good segue to another down the hatch yeah and i'll just close mm-hmm. with with a personal story where I was one of those clinicians Mm -hmm. like early on and I was interested in research and I thought I could do it right and I you know set off to to collect my own data and I wasted time Mm -hmm. I would have been much better to sit down and partner with a scientist who could mentor me and guide me Mm -hmm. and tell me know how to do it better Mm -hmm. so I think um, you know if you're a clinician out there then do email one of the researchers Mm -hmm. Um, we like to hear about people who are keen Mm -hmm. and um, and maybe we will be able to take it on maybe we won't but maybe we'll be able to connect you to somebody else who can and uh, this is how we're going to grow this field is by bringing the strengths of research and the strengths of clinical together mm-hmm. um, and I, I look forward to um, to that library of evidence growing in heterogeneous patients single subject mechanistic mm-hmm. pathophysiological designs mm-hmm. with aggressive attempts at treatment Mm-hmm. and um, and good outcome measurement so that's my dream of yeah. the fantasy world out Big there data. Um, but I think we should I think it's a goal we should be working towards and it's worth fighting for well Dr. Steele we are so grateful that you're willing to come have some fine wine with us and mm. talk swallowing it has been a rich conversation <laughs> and uh, your expertise is definitely shown Absolutely. This is, I mean, obviously I'm in the, I'm the little kid here, just super excited to be able to chat science and, and clinical work with uh, two of the best in the field. So, well, thank you. It's been an honor well, for fun. And cheers. And we'll do this again sometime. We will. Suitcase, this is packed and I'm going on a trip to Mike Adelphia. I go for self and still.